Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Peter Hart. I'm with lovely Gary Bain. And today we're doing something close to your heart, so to speak, Gary. Uh, Something you've taken a lifelong interest in. Pork pies. Yes, pork pies. Who ate all the pies? Who ate all the pies? Who ate, who ate, who ate? We're doing a podcast on pork pies. Yes. No. Eddie Rickenbacker. Who is he? Well, he's the American ace of aces. And and until the Second World War, he he had the most victories of any of our American cousins. Yeah. And we, 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 well, why did we choose... To, to to Eddie Rickenbacker, what 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 have we become aware of, Gary? That people were getting sick of everything else we were doing. That was part of it, yeah. And uh, particularly, we felt that we owed a bit of uh, debt to our American cousins who listened to us in in <laughs> surprising numbers. Since we keep doing accents, they can't understand. Yeah. So, um, and it's a while since we've done some. We we did uh, the uh, Mers Argonne. A podcast that's probably about 18 months ago yeah, now it's too long when we've got a lot of people out there listening to us and and wondering what generic northern means <laughs> yeah. so so this aye, one aye. We, we thought we'd have a look at an individual yep and uh frankly pete a really really interesting man who had a, a, a well he had more than one life uh, he he had a number of lives he as, was as, reincarnated as we will discover he wasn't just successful as a as a pilot he was successful in a number of areas. And I believe life. he's now a horsefly somewhere in India. He probably is. <laughs> now, on that note, Eddie, uh, Edward Eddie Rickenbacker. Well, was, he, he was called Edward Eddie. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to call him Eddie. He was known as Eddie in newspaper articles and the like, so I'm probably going to call him Rickenbacker, but I'm introducing him early. You're, you're, you feel friendly. You feel close This to is him. going to take a long time to get <laughs> yeah. through, isn't right, it? Right, <laughs> Now, he was America's most decorated scout pilot during the Great War and a Medal of Honour recipient. With 26 victories. 26 victories. That's pretty good, isn't it? Well, when you consider the amount of time he was actually in the air, which will become apparent. Uh, but in a very full life, which I alluded to, he was also a pioneering racing car driver, an engineer, and a first-class mechanic. And in later life, he was the head of one of America's largest airlines, Eastern Airlines. Never heard of him. That's because they went bust. <laughs> oh! <laughs> 
So, let's have a little bit about him, Pete. Well, Edward Rickenbacker, as I call him, was born on the 8th of October 1890 in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, he's a third of eight born to German-speaking Swiss immigrants. Uh, Lizzie, I think her name might have been Elizabeth, but they are terribly informal out in the States, and Wilhelm Rickenbacker. <laughs> Such a fine old English name. That. Well, that is actually spelt the German way with... It's spelled B-A-C-H-E-R. Oh, right, yeah. Uh, so he changes the spelling then? Yeah, and, and, and much later he adopted a more American-sounding middle name, Vernon. Now, his parents instilled in young Eddie a strong work ethic and love for his country. He was also brought up in a very religious household. Oh, was he? In 1893, they built a small home. They built it themselves on, on 1334 East Livingston Avenue. Quite, quite a or long road. Or 1334. 1334. Quite a long road, was it? Yeah, obviously. Now, this was due largely because his, his mother invested in some land, much to the chagrin of Wilhelm. Ooh. Now, the house, it lacked running water, indoor plumbing and electricity. And this is where he spent his childhood. Now, as a small boy, he, he liked to take things apart. <laughs> I used to do that, but and uh, then try and find ways of reconfiguring them. Uh, and uh, he always, his dad admonished him. It's like the words I remember from my father. He said, Peter, you'll always be bloody useless. Yeah, only this one was that a machine had to have a purpose. That's more useful than being told you're bloody useless, isn't it? Um, and he worked before and after school. Uh, he helped out at home. Uh, the family uh, grew vegetables out back, I presume. Probably, perhaps out front. I do not know. And uh, cared for the livestock, I presume. He had some piglets and things. Up. Do, you, do you know, Gary? No. Now, he also earned money by delivering newspapers. He worked in a bowling alley and he sold anything he could scavenge. Uh, what did he spend all his money? Well, he gave most of his earnings, like a good lad, to his mother. But he did spend some on tobacco as he'd smoked from the age of five. At what age did you start? Four. <laughs> <laughs> he probably had older That's sisters as well. That's what your growth, isn't it? How tall was Eddie Rickenbacker? Was he a dwarf as well? Now, in what I would suggest is a recurring theme, Rickenbacker was accident-prone as a child. At the age of eight, he had his first brush with death when he led a gang of friends down a slide in a steel cart into a deep gravel pit. <laughs> Just thinking how sensible that is. Uh, it overturned, didn't it? What happened? Well, it cut his leg open to the bone. And on another occasion, his school caught fire and Rickenbacker ran back into the burning building to get his coat. Many's the time we've said the words, I'll get me coat, and we in yeah. polite society. Now, in later life, Rickenbacker came to believe that God had repeatedly saved him for a higher purpose. Uh, killing people. <laughs> well, that was one of his purposes, yes. So he became a religious lunatic, is what you're trying well, to no, say. Well, no, he's, he was brought up in a very yeah. religious household. It's fair enough, each to their own, as we say. Uh, he had uh, something else that's close to your heart. What was that? Well, he had an artistic bent, and he painted watercolours of animals, flowers and scenery. Uh, he tried to design a perpetual motion machine, uh, but his father told him he was wasting his time <laughs> designing a... A machine with no purpose. Uh, I think his father just thought he was a wasting his time because it was a waste of time. Uh, was he a, a good schoolboy? No, he played truant from school 
and he was the de facto leader of a gang called the Horsehead Gang. Oh, I bet they got up to all sorts of mischief, Gaz. Well, they did, and on one occasion, uh, once the Wright brothers had famously completed their first flight in the aeroplane, Rickenbacker tried to fly a bicycle fitted with an umbrella from the roof of a barn. Did it work? <laughs> what do you think? Yes. <laughs> now, years later, his mother reflected on her son's childhood and how he had at times misbehaved. And this is Lizzie Rickenbacker. In boyhood, no. <laughs> in boyhood, uh, no, I've got it in, a, in boyhood, as in manhood, thought and action with Eddie were inseparable. I never saw its like. But his imagination, and he had a plenty, I'm sure it never scored, soared to battles in the sky. Yes, he was a very, very mischievous boy, but never a bad boy. Neither his father nor I had the slightest turn for mechanics. There isn't a trace of it in the family, which came a generation ago to America from Switzerland. As you can tell by the accent. Yet it was only when busy with his hands making something. Dad, you didn't stop the quote there, Gary. Making something that he stayed indoors and out of mischief. Right, that's the only accent we're doing. Yes. Now, in August 1904, his father died after receiving a head injury when he was hit with a spirit level during a fight. Yeah, he was in a coma. Wilhelm, uh, Rickenbacker, in a coma for six weeks before he died. And the attacker, uh, he was convicted of manslaughter and got 10 years in jail. Uh, How old was Eddie then? Carry three. No, I can't work it out. Just under 14 years old. How do you know that? Because I wrote it down. (laughs) Now, although not the only potential breadwinner... Rickenbacker felt that he had to help replace the lost income on the death of his father, and he dropped out of school. Right. Bear in mind, he's just under 14. He lies about his age and gets uh, to get around the child labour laws uh, to work full-time, and uh, during the next two years, he has eight different jobs. List them. Uh, um, no. <laughs> at one of them, while working at Oscar Lear Automobile Company in 1905, he took a correspondence course in engineering. That's quite common in America, isn't it? Correspondence courses in... in uh... Yeah, so he'd be 15 then, would he? I'm trying to work... Yeah. Hey, no. 1905, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, but, but fate was about whoa. to change his life forever. And the next quote is taken from an article by somebody called Carol Vane Gleans. And this was in the January 1999 issue of Aviation History. I've got them all in a big pile over in the corner. And Carol was actually a chap. Oh, that's good. And this is Carol Vane Gleans. Engines became young Rickenbacker's passion and he found a job that changed his life. In 1906, when he went to work for Lee Freyer, a race car driver and head of the Freya Miller Automobile Company. Freya liked the scrawny, scrappy lad and let him ride in major races as his mechanic. Rick later went to work as a salesman for the Columbus Buggy Company, which was then making Firestone Columbus automobiles. Now, he, this is this becomes he follows this as a career, doesn't he? And by eighteen, so you know, a couple of years later, he's a chief engineer at Firestone Columbus, and and it's not his only role, is he? He's sort of a jack of all trades. There, isn't yeah, he's he? a demonstrator, a salesman, and a mechanic. 
Now, his employers, they're really pleased with him. And in 1910, at age just 19, he was sent by Firestone to manage the Upper Midwest Agency in Omaha, where he led a team of six men and was responsible for sales, distribution and maintenance of Firestone Columbus cars in four states. And have a guess how much he was paid? About $10 a week. Listen to this, $150 per week. Now, roughly... Allowing for inflation, inflation and carrying the noughts and whatever, four thousand six hundred dollars in today's money. That sounds a lot. So nineteen. And uh, trying to work it into pounds for our English listeners. Or it's about the same nowadays. It's about the same, all less. <laughs> now Rickenbacker decided that he would enter a twenty-five mile race held in Red Oak, Iowa, as a way of drawing attention to the company's car. Oh, does it go well? Does he draw attention to the company's car? Well, it's his first automobile race, and he failed to finish, having crashed through an outer fence. So he did draw attention of sorts. Yeah. Now, through that, some, that started something, doesn't it? And it becomes, uh, it becomes part of his life. He enters and wins a number of dirt track races, including five of the six races at the Aksarban Festival in October. Now, where is Aksarban, mate? Uh, it's just outside Wimsarban. Uh, now, the newspapers reporting on these races, they, they misspelled his name in a variety of ways, calling him anything from Rickenbau, Rickenbacher, or Reichenberger, before they finally set, settled on Rickenbacker, spelled B-A-C-K-E-R. Mm. Now, in May of the following year, uh, Lee Freyer invited Rickenbacker to join him as his relief driver in the first ever Indianapolis 500. Now, that's a big thing. That's the big thing now. I presume it was that starting Big what a relief. Yeah, what a relief. <laughs> uh, and uh, so he he drives, he drive, He doesn't just sit in the co-pilot, co-pilot, co-driver's seat, does he? No, he, he drove the majority of the laps and he actually helps Freya to 13th place. He also completed the following year, but he was forced to retire after 100 miles. Yeah, they're long races. Yeah, is it 500 miles? Well... I don't know. I don't know, but I would walk 500 miles. Yeah. Anyway, Rickenbacker decided to quit his job and he went on the county fair circuit. Now, uh, problems then arose because in October 1912, the American Automobile Association, they cracked down on drivers and organisations that flout safety regulations. And I would imagine Rickenbacker was one of them. Um, So what happens? Rickenbacker's banned for the following 12 months. And so he joined the workshop of... uh, uh, Frederick and August Dusenberg in Iowa, where he worked up to 16 hours a day. I think it's pronounced August. At $3 a day. That's less so, than 150 That's a lot less than 150 isn't it? Now, next year, July uh, 1913, uh, Rickenbacker's given permission to complete for the Dusenberg team in his hometown race. And somehow he manages to keep on racing throughout that year. He's, he's, he's quite difficult to pin down in these ways, isn't he? Yeah, he won three times, though, during the season. And in 1914, the team parted company with its main investor. And so winning prize money for the team became the primary goal uh, because without prize money, he wouldn't be able to race what was left of that season. 
So he won the 4th of July race at Sioux City uh, and another driver finished third. Another one of his drivers, if you like, uh, of their team drivers. And that brings a combined price of 12500 And that let the, left the uh, Rickenback, the team, finishing able to finish the season. And uh, does he do well overall? Yeah, he finishes sixth in the rankings of the AAA. That's the American Automobile Association. Now, following a brief period with the Peugeot and Maxwell teams, which he called the worst mistake of his racing career, well, it's perfectly obvious to anybody who can think about such things. You mean of the meanest intelligence? I wasn't going to say that because and I do you mean me? <laughs> well, basically, uh, when he moved to Maxwell, he, he stopped being successful in any way, or shape, or form. Was it Peugeot he stopped being? Like? No, it was Maxwell. He was he did okay at Peugeot, but right. Maxwell he, he didn't do well at all, um, and. Rickenbacker then continues to have success. Now, this is the point. Funny enough, in my head, I was drifting to thinking, oh, the war's started. But it hasn't, of course, has it? It's not started for another uh, three years. Well, not not for the Americans. Not for the Americans. But it has for Europe. You're quite right. There is a war in Europe. And in 1915, he joined the new Presto Light team. New Presto Light. (laughs) And in that season, he won at Sioux City for the third year in a row. Uh, so what's his over what's his o- overall position in in racing? I mean, is he really just a, another racing driver, or is he? Is yeah, I, mean, I think you're referring to his profile, aren't you? Yeah. And he he was now one of the most famous racing drivers in America, and he earned an astonishing forty thousand dollars a year. Now during this period. Uh, he wrote a little book of rules and regulations for the team, which contained advice that he basically lives by for the rest of his life. And this is what Eddie Rickenbacker wrote. If you don't like the way we do business, if you don't like your teammates, don't grouse and don't come around with a long face. Quit this job and get another some another one somewhere else. The trouble with a lot of people is that they are not willing to begin anywhere in order to get a fighting chance. My advice is... Throw away false pride. No honest work is beneath you. Jump in and demonstrate your superiority, which is what you did at TFL in many ways. But also, you think about it, he's gone from a $150 a week job and, and you know, he's not too proud to earn $3 a day. No, that, and so he lived by that. He yeah. really did. Now, it was at this point that Rickenbacker signed for the British Sunbeam team for the upcoming season and he set sail for England. England at war. England at war. Uh, did he have any problems when he got to? Uh, he got. He landed at Liverpool, didn't he? He did. And when he landed, he was detained by two plain clothes officers, and he was prevented from leaving the ship. Now, why, there was, why? 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 I think I can guess why. Well, there is a suggestion that an article in 1914 claiming that the racer was Baron Rickenbacker. The disowned son of a Prussian noble led to the British authorities thinking that he was a German spy. But Rickenbacker himself later said, I went to England to purchase a sunbeam. I secured passports and on arrival in Liverpool was questioned by the authorities there, the British Intelligence Bureau. I was ordered to stay on the boat that was going to be returned. So he's going straight back to America. They were looking for a German spy whose description I answered to a T. And with the name of Rickenbacker attached to me, of course, they thought 
<laughs> they had him. He sailed at the time I sailed. So this sailed from America, I presume. Yeah, wow. Now, fortunately, he's able to use the same ingenuity that would later help him to save lives to get him out of a tricky situation. And he goes on to say... Christmas Day came along, <clears throat> and I persuaded the authorities to let me spend Christmas Day on land. I was able to get in touch with Mr. Coatland, who was the directing manager of the Sunbeam Works, and he vouched for my status, and he got in touch in communication, sorry, with the Intelligence Bureau, and they allowed him, allowed me to proceed to London. I was able to get in touch with the English officers, and from their attitude and morale, I realised that America would have to get into the war sooner or later. Now, he spent the week working at the Sunbeam Works in Wolverhampton, and then the weekends in London at the Savoy Hotel. Now, that's quite a contrast. <laughs> what? Are you saying that Wolverhampton's different from the Savoy? Just a bit. Now, he remained in England for six weeks, during which time he was under full-time surveillance by the British authorities before he returned to America. So he hadn't really gone to... He'd sort of gone to get this new car and, and, and work on things. And, right. He wasn't racing in England. No, no. I think the idea was uh, to, to use their car. Now, while he was in England, he'd actually watched the Royal Flying Corps aircraft flying from the Bl Brooklands Aerodrome, which was also a famous uh, car racing track. Yeah. Um, and he began to think about a role in aviation should America enter the war. So um, he, he has two meetings, doesn't he, with uh, with with British aviators, or, or um, uh, who are they? Well, he has two chance encounters with aviators: Glenn Martin, who gave Rickenbacker his first flight, and Major Townsend Dodd, who would later become General Pershing's aviation officer, so not British. Hmm. So now Rickenbacker is confident that the racing fraternity in America had something to offer, and following the declaration of war on Germany by the the United States, that that's so that's April nineteen seventeen. He went to Washington D.C. What does D.C. stand for? Washington. Oh. Uh, to propose this idea, and he says this. I felt that the boys in the racing game were better qualified for aviation than any other type of man, men we had. I also knew that the mechanics who had been interested in this sport and, uh, and had experience with their high-speed motors and their development that aviation had not come to yet, so I thought it would be a good plan if I could organise the racers who'd been racing on land as pilots and the mechanics <coughs> as enlisted personnel and have the government supply the necessary physical personnel to bring about this organisation. And there was no appro appropriation allotted for any part, any, uh, any, uh, <laughs> for such a project. And I was also discouraged to the extent that they said that the more a man knew about motors, the worse off he was as far as aviation was concerned, because he would pay too much attention to the motor and not enough to the flying and fighting. Wow. And on that note, well, while we think about that, let's think about it, Gary. Um, we'll have a short break. 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. By June 1917, Rickenbacker was in France where he enlisted in the US infantry and he was assigned a role as a driver for General, General Pershing's staff. Woo! <laughs> Wanted a fast driver, did he? Well, at this point, Rickenbacker earned the rank of Sergeant First Class, but he never drove for General Pershing, and he spent most of his time as a driver for Major Dodd. Hang on. That name is familiar to me. It's the man he met earlier, and he was now General Pershing's Ma- aviation Ma- Major officer. Major Townsend Dodd, yeah. Now, during this time, a chance encounter with a Captain James Miller led to him becoming the chief engineer at the flight, school and aerodrome that was being established by Captain Miller at Usadon. Now, Rickenbacker thought it would uh, he would be a shoo-in for the Aviation Corps. Yeah, he did. He says this. A long practice in driving a racing car at 100 miles an hour or so gives first-class training in control and judging distances at high speed and helps tremendously in getting motor sense, which is rather the feel of your engine rather than the sound of it, a thing which you get through your bones and nerves rather than simply your ears. Well, he's not quite right here because, um, yeah... Well, he was mistaken because uh, most of those recruited to train as pilots, they had college degrees. Yeah, I'm not entirely certain about that, but it, it certainly that was part of it, wasn't it? And they did go through courses that and meant that. Let's let's remember he dropped out of school at the age of fourteen on the uh, on the death of his father. But what he lacked in education, he more than made up for in drive and determination. Yeah, because because he's a uh, he's a, an engineer, he's got bags of access to aircraft, and 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 and, and he practices flying, presumably at first with somebody else as a co-pilot, you know. But he, he does, you know. Uh, but there's a complication. What always happens if you're a good subordinate or a good mechanic? Well, his superiors considered him to be more valuable as a mechanic than they did as a pilot, and they continued to keep him grounded. But in order to get around that, Rickenbacker began to train someone else to replace him as chief engineer. And in November 1917, the Burlington, which is Iowa, Gazette reported this. Where's Iowa? America. They can't make them too fast for Eddie Rickenbacker, American speed demon now in France with General Pershing's forces. Rick went as an automobile driver and for a time was attached to Pershing's personal staff as his driver. But this was too slow for the speed merchant and he asked to be transferred to the Aviation Corps where he could get some real speed. The transfer was made and Eddie entered an aviation training camp in the south of France. It took him six weeks to complete the course, which usually occupies four months of training and instruction. And Eddie is now a regular airman. 
Yeah, and Rickerbacker describes that course himself because he's put on, he's got, he's got a replacement and he's sent on the course. Uh, and he says this, I had about four or five hours with an instructor and then took my first solo hop. That's very quick, Gary. Uh, and then I have, uh, Rickenbacker didn't say that's very quick, Gary. He didn't know you. And then I averaged three or four hours a day flying alone. Took my spiral test, took my cross country tests and had completed all my tests at the end of 18 hours. Wow. But the rule, rules required a man to be up, uh, up to, uh, up 25 hours in the air before he was qualified to receive his brevet. And during that 25 hours, he was supposed to make 50 landings. Well, I still had seven hours to fly and I also had about 22 landings to make. So I started out one morning to visit the surrounding aerodromes. I had an order on my, I had an order on any of the French aerodromes to supply me gasoline if I landed at them. I put in the seven hours that day, and the following day I did my landings, one after the other. That is, I would go up and circle round and land and go up again and come back and land without stopping the motor. Presumably he'd have landed at the French aerodrome, so I'm not sure why he did that as well, but never mind. perhaps he had to do it witnessed by the people. Now, Rick and Becker was assigned to the 94th Aero Squadron, which was known as the Hat in the Ring Squadron. Now, later, Rickenbacker explained the nickname in an article for the American public in August 1918. And this is now Lieutenant Eddie Rickenbacker of Ooh. the 94th Aero Squadron. I'm a lieutenant. Every man has a picture of a hat in a ring on his machine. That means he's ready to fight at any time, whether he wants to or not. <laughs> the squadron is sometimes known as the Hat in the Ring Squadron. But amongst ourselves, it's the Gimpers. Mm. I'm not sure that means the same in English as American. We adopted the hat in the ring as our emblem back in our training days. Then it was our hope to be the first fighting squadron to get to the front. Our commanding officer, who'd been with the French, used to have a hat as the emblem on his machine. Someone suggested that we take the hat, put a ring round it, carrying out the idea of ex-President Roosevelt's famous statement that we were ready to fight any time. Doug Campbell added the finishing touch to the hat in the ring emblem when he got his fifth hun, and he became the first of all, first of all, first all-American trained ace. That's uh, yeah. Some somewhere he scarred up, scared up, scarred, scared, scared up a paintbrush and painted a little black cross in the ring around the hat for each German he brought down. They were regular German crosses, just like the one you see on German planes before you let them have it. Wow. It's all said in a very matter-of-fact way, isn't it? Yeah. Now, Rickenbacker's first sortie on the 13th of April 1918 nearly ended in disaster. Ooh. Remember I said he was a bit accident-prone? Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why? Both he and a colleague got lost in fog and were forced to land. Flight Commander David Peterson called Rickenbacker a bloody fool for flying off in fog. Oh, now, but, but that, you know, 16 days later, 29th of April, Rickenbacker shoots down his first German aircraft. Um, and that it, it's described in the Chicago Tribune some 20 years later. Now, um, the, yeah, go, go on, go on, go on, go on, tell me. It was late in the afternoon of April 29th, 1918. Above was the deepening blue of the sky. Below was the shell-torn earth, and a hundred feet away at Eddie's left wing tip roared his patrol mate, Captain James Norman Hall, in a similar Newport. Suddenly, Hall's plane banked and began to climb and spiral upward to the left. Rickenbacker followed. He didn't know what was up, but he had faith in Jimmy Hall. 
a speedy German Albatross scout plane was approaching from the north. Now, that's very much a journalist's article. And the, 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 it's, it's interesting how journalists then as now get a lot of things wrong. And according to Rickenbacker himself, it was a false uh, scout. Uh, and it, it would be his first kill. And he says this. I clung as closely to Hall as I could. With his first dive, I was right by his side. We had at least a thousand feet advantage over the German, and we were two to one numerically. He's good at maths, isn't he? Uh, at 150 yards, I pressed my triggers. That's long range, by the way. The tracer bullets cut a streak of living fire into the rear of the false's tail. Raising the nose of my air- airplane slightly, I lifted the fiery streak like a stream of water from a garden hose. Gradually, it settled into the pilot's seat. The swerving of the albatross's course indicated that its rudder was no longer held by a directing hand. At 2,000 feet above the enemy's lines, I pulled up my headlong dive and watched as the enemy circled a little to the south and the next minute crashed into the ground. Wow, that's a quite descriptive uh, account. Uh, also slightly purple pro, so uh, an after-the-war account, possibly. Yeah, possibly. Now, Norman Hall, who uh, he fought alongside that day, survived the war, and he later went on to write Mutiny on the Bounty, Ooh, which is uh, just a complete aside and, and meaningless and adds nothing to the podcast. I think it's a, a crucial But detail. I thought I'd add it anyway. Well, uh, he also wrote uh, an autobiography, which is... Uh, Colourful. Yes. Uh, those of you who are um, my American friends, I'm not criticising Hall. It's just he wrote it to uh, make money. And I don't blame him for that. Now, Rickenbacker received his first Distinguished Service Cross for extraordinary heroism in an action near Montsec, France, on the 29th of April 1918. Well, that sounds like it's the action we've just heard about. And, yeah, and, and a uh, second soon it follows. Sa- sounds a bit soft. That's not extraordinary heroism. And a second follows for extraordinary heroism in action over Richecourt, France, on the 17th of May, 1918. So he's doing well. I mean, the, 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 these orders do seem a little bit much at times, but it's the culture of the time. It's what, it's what But also been... they're looking for a hero. And they, we're you know, certainly, these, we're these certainly not the first American-trained scout pilots. And we're certainly not saying that they weren't heroes, because no. I think we're both admirers of Rickenbacker. By the 28th of May, he claimed his fifth kill and become an ace. Wow, I always important. think that's very low numbers to, to become. Oh, no, ace. it's from early in the, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's what it was early in the war. And later that same month, he received the French Croix de Guerre, yeah. as well as yet another Distinguished Service Cross. Yeah, they became, you'll have no room in his uniform if you don't watch it with the DSOs. It, DSCs, sorry, that's an English mistake. Now, 30th of May 1918, he, he achieves his, uh, his uh, sixth victory and the fifth Distinguished Flying Cross. Uh, they came up with the rations, I, th- I suspect, uh, those. And the action was described by a fellow ace, and this is uh, Major James Meissner of the 94th Aero Squadron, so Hat in the Ring Squadron. And what does he say, Gary? I was in combat with a German and just dived down to attack the German plane. And in diving down to make the attack, the entering edge of my plane tore away again. Then, as I straightened out to return home, being in that condition, the German saw my predicament and he came back. I could not manoeuvre fast. The German was coming closer and closer and he was shooting all the time. And then Rickenbacker came up alongside. Rickenbacker got him. Rickenbacker was a little ahead and he came down as fast as he could and assisted. That time I flew back to the field and landed all right. Now, um, this is the interesting thing about how long he's thinking. He started in April. 
mid-April, uh, uh, 29th was, was that his first kill? I can't remember. But, it, um, but it, it, this is not long, but uh, that's uh, the end of it for a while. It's the end of May. And what happens? Well, it's his last victory for more than three months. Why, Gary? Why? Well, in June, he had a fever and an ear infection that developed into an abscess. And whilst recovering in hospital in Paris, he was reflecting on his shortcomings as a pilot. Shortcomings as a pilot. And he decided that he needed to be less impetuous and have more self-discipline. That's quite extraordinary, really. Why have you never reflected on your shortcomings? (laughs) Uh, Because I've never had an abscess. Yeah. Uh, uh, Why haven't you ever had more self-discipline? But he he, he gets out of hospital in time for the St. Mihal offensive. Um, And by this time, the the squadron are based in Rembacore Aerodrome. And the offensive takes place on the 12th of September 1980. It's the first major, mainly American offensive. They're backed up by French um, artillery and things. But it's a big thing. The Germans have have actually evacuated the... uh, the uh, salient, uh, but it's still a big thing. It is a very big thing. And for these actions, he receives his sixth DSC on the 14th of September, uh, sorry, on the 12th of September, and on the 14th of September, his seventh. Yeah, yeah right. Um, <laughs> I may have got that wrong, actually. I think he got his sixth on the 14th and he got his seventh the following day. Now, by this time, he's promoted to captain. And he's given command of the 94th oh, Squadron. Oh, not a major then. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, who, uh, along with other squadrons of the First Pursuit Group, had converted from Newport planes to the more durable and higher powered SPAD 13s, which was an excellent aircraft, which was suited to Rickenbacker's style of attack. Well, they're, they're both excellent aircraft. Newports are, later Newports are good. And the SPAD is 13 is a, a, a good aircraft, isn't it? You know. Now, he gets to work to turn the underperforming 94th Squadron back into a team, uh, reminding the mechanics... Have they drifted a bit while he's away? Yeah, yeah, I mean, they're still performing, but but he didn't think that they were acting as a team. And he reminds the mechanics, for example, that he was one of them and stressed how important their work was for the success of the squadron. Yeah, the other thing is, and this is classic leadership, isn't it? And I admire it enormously in Rickenbacker. He told his squadron that he wouldn't ask them to do anything he wouldn't do uh, uh, himself, uh, either first, as to set an example, or alongside them. I think that's great. And uh, are there any examples of that? Yeah, on the 25th of September, to, to sort of underscore the point, Rickenbacker takes a solo patrol over the line and, and he shoots down two enemy planes the next morning. Now, his victories that day earned him the Medal of Honour that we referenced earlier, although that wasn't awarded until 1931. So it, I presume by that it was converted from a DSC to a Medal of Honour. I have no idea, yeah. It was. No, I see. You know about these things. Now, Rickenbacker shot down another fucker. Oh, no, that's the, the, the D7. Yeah, and I, I was oh, going to stop at another fucker. Uh, yeah, I, I know why, but I remember American friends don't like us saying fucker. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Uh, but the D7s, are, it, this isn't preying on a, an old-fashioned aircraft. This isn't the fucker from the earlier days. of Fucker D7, probably the best aircraft in the war. There just weren't many of them. But it's a real opponent, isn't it, the D7? Yeah, and you said fucker a number of times I there. did not say fucker a number of you times. You did. T- <laughs> he shoots it down on the 27th of September, <laughs> and he then spent a month targeting the heavily defended enemy observation balloons. Well, that's crucial. Why is that important, Gary? Well, because it's... Uh, 
constant view. And uh, So they don't have to land. They don't have to land. They can stay up there unless you shoot them down. Now, he held regular briefings with the men of the 94th Squadron, detailing methods for the attack and ideas for battle tactics, all of which were laid out on blackboards, which is a bit like a modern-day football. And right? I think he they mean American football, because I'm particularly thinking of the, 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 the way they do it. Uh, what's the problem in attacking the balloons? I mean, we talked about this in the last one. Uh, do, do the Germans just fly the balloon or do they have defences around them? No, they have defences and uh, very serious defences as well. Uh, so you're, you're going to be... Um, they're not easy. No. Lots of machine guns, uh, anti-aircraft guns. It's, it's just a nightmare. And not easy. And not easy. That's absolutely right. Um, so how's he going by the end of October? Well, he'd shot down 30, 13 Fokker D7s. 13... And that's, four that's other types of German aircraft. I think that's that's impressive. As I, well I, as five observation balloons and four reconnaissance planes. And this brings his total to 26 victories, 15 of which were in the last six weeks of the war. 15 in the last six weeks. Yeah, that's quite impressive. Um, now, in total, why, why, why do we know his name more than any other uh, American pilot at the time? Although I can think of other pilots at the time. He flew more patrols and spent more hours in the air than any other American pilot in the service, a total of 300 combat hours. It wasn't just Rickenbacker. By the end of the war, the 94th had the highest number of victories of any American squadron. And I think that's to Rickenbacker's credit in many ways. It's like uh, the, the effect, uh, to use a British hero to, to show what we mean, uh, Manic, the impact Manic had when he joined a squadron, it would immediately become more efficient and, 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 and a, a better killing machine leading from the front, teaching this business of, it's what we said about Transferable aces. skills. And, yes. Transfer. And, and it's what we said about the great aces. They not only could do it themselves, but they could inculcate the tactics into other people yeah that's fabulous mick and eddie mick and eddie major edward manick yeah <laughs> now this is all a bit romantic yes. and, and, and possibly not actually uh, the case but on the 11th of november 1918 captain rickenbacker flew a solo flight above no man's land at 11 o'clock to observe the armistice as the fighting stopped and this is what he said yeah, I was the only audience for the greatest show ever presented. On both sides of No Man's Land, the trenches erupted. Brown uniformed men poured out of the American trenches. Grey-green uniforms out of the German. From my observer's seat overhead, I watched them throw their helmets in the air, discard their guns, wave their hands. Now, you see, that I find, I don't believe a word of that. Um, it, it's not what happened. In fact, an American chap whose name of Gunter was killed uh, two minutes after the armistice. Uh, if you ran out of the trenches uh, on the, the stroke of 11 o'clock, the other side would have shot you. So I think this is more later in the day sort of thing. As I say, it was, it's very romanticised and unlikely to be uh, accurate. But it gives, a, it gives an idea of the emotions of the time, perhaps, and, and how people felt and how, how Rickenbacker felt. Now, he left the Army Air Service in 1919 with the rank of captain. He developed a taste for fame, 
And that's not only from, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the service, but, but, you know, he was a racing car driver. And it wasn't difficult for the army to convince him to remain in service. So he spent the first months back home in America touring the country, encouraging people to continue to buy Liberty Bonds. Now, uh, what sort of performance would he put on? Well, he was an excellent speaker, although he appreciated what it was the army wanted of him, and he wasn't averse to speaking a bit of bollocks from time to time. Are we going to have an exam? Yes, and you're going to give it to us. And this is Captain Eddie Rickenbacker. What better person to give some bollocks? Before going up, I had pasted a a poster on my machine which read, Buy bonds or fight. While observing the enemy planes which were getting close to me, I looked over the side of my plane and my eye caught sight of the goddess of liberty and the impressive injunction, buy bonds or fight. I knew I couldn't buy bonds just then, so I quickly decided to fight. In the struggle for air superiority that followed, two of the Kaiser's men were put out of business forever, and the third was forced to land behind his own lines. That was my first day's fight, and the Liberty poster supplied the inspiration for me to go and get the Huns. Absolute bollocks from start to finish. But may have persuaded and some people... read, I'd just like to say, because it made no sense as I read it. I may have persuaded some people to buy Liberty Bonds. Who knows? Yeah. Well, no, that's... Yeah, and he's doing a good job for his country. Uh, that's what he was required to do. As he said, Rickenbacker knew what they wanted. Mm. And now, by way of thanks, uh, he was promoted to major for the efforts before he was finally discharged. But but Rickenbacker felt that this wasn't a rank that he'd earned, and so he always referred to himself as captain for the rest of his life. Uh, it, it's so different from some people, those people who get promoted at the end and then use that for the rest of their life. Uh, I think that... It, it, That's why I'm called Brigadier Bain, isn't it? It is, because you had uh, three colonels working in your department. <laughs> now, he spent the time immediately following the war, right, in fighting the Flying Circus, which was his own exciting account of the battles fought by the American pilots in the uh, air war over France. And it is one of the primary sword cult, uh, sources for this podcast. Uh, he used the, uh, he got a lot of money from that, didn't he? Uh, and uh, he used the proceeds uh, uh, and, and this severance pay, which I doubt was much at all, uh, to start the, what did he, what was it called? He started the Rickenbacker Motor Company. Now, Eddie Rickenbacker received the Distinguished Service Cross a record eight times, one of which was upgraded to the Medal of Honour he received uh, in, uh, in 1930, as well as the Leader of Honour and Croix de Guerre from France. I think that's 1931, actually, he got the medal. I was just... Uh, you caught me there. I was just about to correct you. I was just looking through to try and find it. Oh, no, damn. I think he's 31. Now, his 26 victories remain the highest number recorded by an American ace until Richard Bong... Bong? ...recorded 40 victories during World War II. Well, that's enough excitement for any man, and uh, I'm sure that that's uh, the last we'll ever hear of uh, Eddie Rickenbacker. No, because at some point... Uh, if, if we ever get round to it, there's going to be another podcast detailing more excitement of uh, Captain Eddie Rickenbacker's amazing life, uh, which continues to tell the story of this brave man and, and his incredible life. I, I think he's a, a true hero. Um, uh, I'd be interested if any of our, if there's any alternative viewpoints. He seems to be. I've not seen anything negative about it, but you've particularly studied this. For the, uh, tell us which which books you found most useful. Well, largely his own book, um, uh, "Fighting the Flying Circus," uh, which he wrote uh, in 1919, but also uh, his book "Rickenbacker," which was uh, who wrote that? It was by 
Edward V, remember Vernon? Vernon. Edward V, Rickenbacker. He which liked was, to be called Vern. Which was published by Prentice Hall in 1967. Uh, but also, Eddie Rickenbacker, The Life and Legacy of America's Top World War One Fighting Ace, which is one of the Charles River Editors books, which is a much, 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 much abridged uh, uh, version of his that. life. No, but it's useful. I, I sometimes like to read um, uh, what we describe as noddy books. Yeah, get you uh, in the mood. Because it gets you in the mood and gets you, you sort of uh, behind the story. Now, that's that for today. Uh, I would just like to say for our American friends that our book, Laugh or Cry, will apparently be available in America uh, on... Uh, well, right, for, right in January, which in is January. around... I'm not sure when this podcast will be out, but it, it'd be good to look at it, look for it on American Amazon or any other American bookshops. Um, and we do appreciate the support that we get from our American friends. And you know, buying a book is a surefire way of supporting a book. Podcast. Well, it's better than buying us a coffee or, or, uh, or a bit of that. Other and it means that we thing. can continue to uh, produce this drivel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll be we'll be doing more American stuff this year. We're looking forward to it, and uh, it's our New Year's resolution for 2023, isn't it? Be better and do more American stuff. They're not my resolutions. Or yours. <laughs> and on that note, cheers, che- Pete. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 